Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What is shaking, friend? We've both been doing a little bit of traveling to see our loved ones, but you have really been on the road for like, it seems, weeks and weeks having adventures with planes, <laughs> trains, <laughs> and a bus. Dee <laughs> Dee, that was our sworn secrecy about that last one. Um, I don't know if I'm ready quite yet to, to, to relive that trauma that I experienced. Um, <laughs> it was it was a lot. It was a lot. Uh, that's that's a story from another episode. Um, but I've been doing so much though. We, you're right. I have been traveling and seeing the world. It feels like between my friends, a wedding, my godchildren's birthdays. I'm planning my high school reunion as well. I'm not going to say what year it is, but um, <laughs> it's just been a lot going on. <laughs> It is, um, and you have the cutest, cutest godchildren. Um, I know, how many do you have now? And, I don't know. Please, wait, 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 and please be sure to emphasize one in particular had a birthday and what you got her for her. Was it her fourth birthday? It was her fifth birthday. My little Noah Grace. My uh, she turned five, and I, I, I started her. Um, I probably went a little excessive. Let me just be very clear. <laughs> um, but I started her Barbie. Her, her. Um, collector's Barbie um, collection. So I'm like, I got her really these really nice historical black figure Barbie dolls. Um, Rosa Parks, um, Ida B. Wells, um, Naomi Osaka. I got her the Black Panther, um, a Black Panther doll as well. I I went a little overboard. I got her like six Barbie dolls. And the funny part about it, Didi, was like, she was like, oh my God, these are so great. I can't wait to open them. I was like, oh no, 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 no. You can't open them. These are going to go on a shelf where you can never touch them until you turn a hundred. So <laughs> I was like, and her mouth was like, exactly. Thanks. But then, but then I pulled, I then I pulled out a, a doll for her to actually open and play with because you can't just give a child a, all these dolls and not have given them nothing to play with. So I did give her one to play with, and she loved it. So funny. Oh my goodness! Well, what do you do for the uh, for the nephews? I mean, you got to see baby Nico, too. I, I don't see baby Nico, baby Andy, Kai. I mean, there's a lot of I have a lot of kids in my life, and I I, I joke with my friends. I, I had to leave Atlanta because it was just it was kid over overload. I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, oh, it was, it was one party, it. one one play day after another. I was like, I can't do this. I need, I need my. I want to turn up with my friends. <laughs> and I miss that. And, and not with the babies, Ed. Right, exactly. Uh, I love it. You're such a good godfather and uncle. Um, but obviously, you don't have to worry about me adding to that god kid collection unless you want to adopt me. You don't have to worry about dolls because I don't like them. Well, I so do. Just- I do take. I do take um, your baby grits as a special. <laughs> I'm, you know, that's my god cat. <laughs> I don't think Grits has ever gotten one single present from you. And I actually hate cats. So this is actually on on brand. I don't trust them. Secretly, I do too. (laughs) (laughs) I I can't stand a cat. But your godchild, your two godchildren, your goddogs, Saint and um, Bentley, 
we need to get some. Saint just had a birthday. She's three. Oh. My little chunk chunk. Oh my gosh, those and, dogs. And, and I'm putting him on a diet also because he's a little chunky. Because I was like, wait, what is my mom feeding him? <laughs> no, mother is feeding him barbecue. You already know. Correct. I was like, oh my God, you're happy. <laughs> you already know Saint is getting barbecue by your brother, is getting fed barbecue. That is so funny. So funny. Yeah, it's crazy. But speaking of these like Barbies and adorable kids, our amazing next guest is like social impact Barbie, plus has an adorable little glamour girl like Noah herself. Her daughter is Hudson Gray. Um, so we are so excited to welcome Melissa Potter to the pod. And I'm always talking about her, right, John? Yes, you are. All the time. I cannot wait to talk to Melissa. She is amazing. Wait till you see her fashions. She is totally going to come with an amazing hairstyle, some cool glasses. She wears color like nobody's business. And she is killing it as the vice president of strategy and impact at Paramount. She oversees the Content for Change initiative, which you know is an initiative close to my heart. She is an expert on race, identity, culture, equity, and social justice, and is known for masterfully managing moments of crisis with her unflappable style. Melissa is a New York native with a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology from Northeastern University and a Master's in Corporate Communications and Public Relations from NYU. She is an NAACP Image Award-nominated producer and received the Change Agent of the Year Award in 2018 from the Digital Diversity Network. She is also a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority and is serving and making impact on a few boards that I cannot wait for her to tell us about. Welcome, Melissa. Yay. Welcome, Melissa Potter to Black on the Sea. I'm excited. <laughs> and looking fabulous. How are you doing today? <laughs> feeling good. It's been a busy week, but it's been productive and I'm ready for some cocktails and yes. wine. Can we do that <laughs> on the show right now? Is it too early for a little cocktail, DD? It's, <laughs> it's five o'clock. Right. Exactly. And, and Melissa, you are looking stunning as usual. The color, the glasses. John, she has a better eyeglass collection than you, my friends. <laughs> I, I can tell. I'm already enamored by these. I'm like, I need to know all your secrets of where you get these frames from because they're stunning. Credit goes to Margie at Style Eyes Optical out of Brooklyn, Black-owned optical shop. Yes. She has everything. These are low frames. She surprised me with a couple weeks ago, and you don't even need to go in person. She can mail them to you with your prescription or without. So highly mm -hmm. recommend a Black-owned mm -hmm. Yes. Love that. I just wrote that down in my notes, so thank you. <laughs> so, welcome. We are going to get started um, with a fun little trivia game because John is our resident, like, cinephile. He loves movies. He's seen movies that I haven't seen, and I'm just a tiny bit older than him, and he is always like, I can't believe you didn't see that. So, we, he's, he, 
He's our trivia expert. And I know you guys both have a favorite movie in common, and that's Boomerang, which also yeah. is one of my favorite movies. Marcus. So, by the way, <laughs> by the way, there is there isn't a prize. For this, you don't get anything if you win. But just I reward myself with the cocktail after. You get, you get bragging rights that you beat me because I think every time we've done this, I've won. Haven't I, Didi? No, you have not. Oh, wait. I was like, am I undefeated? I'm not. Okay. I'm maybe, I'm like, I'm six and one. <laughs> okay. So this is multiple choice. Who directed Boomerang? Spike Lee, Reginald Hudlin, or Casey Lemons? B. B. You're late, John. Melissa. No, it's a delay. It's a delay. (laughs) Okay. This I didn't know when I looked up the question. What other actresses auditioned for Jacqueline other than Robin Givens, who we know got the role? Did Halle Berry? Did Jasmine Guy? Did Vanessa Williams? Who was it? Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> I think I think it was Hallie too. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Or no, Vanessa. Vanessa. So you both lose. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love that. Imagine I could see Vanessa in 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 that. Absolutely. Especially during that time period. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So the movie was actually shot in which of these cities? Mm. New York, Toronto, or LA? LA? I'm going to say New York. Melissa? (laughs) (laughs) It was one that it seemed too simple of an answer, but I'm like, no, that was Washington Square Park, I believe. Hey there. Ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. Even, yeah. Because Rachel Hudlin actually said it was freezing when they were shooting this, but you weren't going to get the authentic New York Mm -hmm. vibe anywhere else. So, John. Melissa, thank you for joining us at Black on the Scene. It's been real. This has been a great interview. I'm a 1,000% sore loser, and I'm over it. (laughs) Questions, and we'll make it quick. Okay, the soundtrack was obviously iconic. So is so wait, is she so Melissa's answered two questions right so far? So if I get these two, it'll be tied. Okay. Okay. Challenge. I'm in I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> okay. So the soundtrack was 
obviously iconic. The best. It was at number one for months and months and months. Mm-hmm. Who produced the soundtrack? Teddy Riley, mm-hmm. Quincy Jones, or L.A. Reed and Babyface? L.A. Reed and Babyface? Ter- oh, shit. Teddy Riley. M- Melissa? <laughs> I don't think I knew that. Okay, I'm really... <laughs> going up in flames. Last question. John! Last question. I haven't got one right. This is not okay. <laughs> Last question. And actually, we could fold right now because Melissa... <laughs> <laughs> For my own pride, please ask, ask the question. Yeah. I need okay. to get one right. I try at least. Soundtrack. This is one of my favorite, favorite movie soundtracks. And I know y'all love it too. It sold how many copies? 500,000, 3 million, or 5 million? It was certified, I'll give you a hint, triple platinum. Three million. Three million. By the way, John, you know Melissa got her start in the music industry, so This is all this wasn't fair. This isn't fair. Do 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 um what do you think sound trivia? <laughs> I'm ready for that too. <laughs> Challenge. <laughs> Oh my god! This was fun. Thank you, Didi. Thank so, you for allowing I, me to beat you, John. <laughs> listen, now I'm. I think I'm like six and two now, five and two or something. Okay. Like I gotta get my my keep track. Keep track. I, my my oh and six or whatever. <laughs> um, Melissa, we are so happy to have you on Black on the Scene. This has been such a um a beautiful experience for Didi and I that started what two, three years ago, and we are in season four, which is crazy. Um, And, you know, we really love that we are able to just to to lift up our network and lift up our community um, with this platform. And talking to you, for me, someone that I didn't know you um, until now, I I wanted to learn more about you and your experience. Um, And and where'd you get this? I was talking about you all the time. I was like, you have got me. We got <laughs> <laughs> so like we have never we have never crossed paths. Cross I don't think. So, so but crazy. I know once we connect the black folk dots, we're gonna know everybody. Yeah, here we are. Here we are. Um, so I always like to talk about um, the beginning. So the beginning for you, Miss Melissa Potter, yeah. um, where the fashion sense came from, where the the desire to be in this industry came from. I want to go back to your childhood. And I want to talk about who you were as a young girl. Oh, that's a good one. So, a very bossy, Taurus-only child, which I think set the stage very early on for my aspirations. And a child also of parents that came from two very different worlds. My dad is one of eight from the 40 Projects in Jamaica, Queens, and my mother is one of two whose father was from Trinidad and Venezuela and spent time in medicine for many years as a chief cardiac perfusionist at Mount Sinai. And so this like bougie little black girl and this young black man from the streets met at the post office when they were working at 19 years old. And from there, I spent my early years in Queens before my dad was the first to say, you know what, we are leaving the city. I grew up around, you know, in a two-bedroom apartment with eight siblings and my mother. I need space. I love the outdoors. So 
So I was actually raised in Rockland County, New York, a little town called Chestnut Ridge, which is near Spring Valley, which was the Black epicenter of Rockland, but on an acre of land with, you know, a pool and a basketball court. And so it was my dad's dreams realized, but they kept me very grounded in both worlds, going to schools in Harlem, going to schools in Queens. And so I was always able to navigate white environments, black environments, shift my tongue, you know, easily back and forth from both worlds. I knew the Z100 top, top 10 list and that I knew the Hot 97 countdown at the same time. And so was getting to have to learn how to live in both spaces that I think entertainment was at the root of it all and pop culture. And so that is what brought me back full circle to the love and the passion that I have for those spaces today. I love that. And out of curiosity too, when you, as you were growing up and having these, these experiences, as you were watching television or reading magazines or watching movies did you ever like see yourself depicted on screen by anything? Like, did you like, oh my God, you know, Rudy Huxable reminds me of myself on the Cosby show. Or did you ever like see yourself in any way? And if so, what was that like show or movie or experience? I would hope to be a Rudy Huxtable and I would watch these shows <laughs> and say, you know, I, I wish that my experience was so similar, but it wasn't, right? Because mm-hmm. my parents were both, working in law enforcement, coming from civil service spaces. So, you know, as it seemed like we moved on up, we actually were not the Jack and Jill family. We didn't have, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the traditional professional career backgrounds in my family. So actually wasn't until years later, insecure season one, where I said, oh my God, there I am on TV. Finally, (laughs) like, that's the story of the young eager, coming from, you know, maybe two-parent family background, but still dealing with the strife of Blackness and growth and coming into my womanhood, where I finally saw myself reflected on Well, wow, that's so... First of all, it's it's surprising, but then not surprising, right? Because we think there have been all these shows and characters dedicated, or not dedicated, but that we're represented a little bit better. And it wasn't until your adulthood... And so how did you, did you know what you're doing now was a job? How did you get into the music space from Northeastern? Just connect the dots on all of that, because I'm just fascinated by your entertainment and impact the intersection of that in in, in the work that you do. Yeah. So entertainment, social impact, I think as a, as a job title, as a possibility, really only came about in the last five to 10 years. So it was truly organic that I always had a passion for pop culture, music, entertainment. And I, again, the only person in my entire family not to pursue a career in law enforcement, whether it were court officers, correction officers, police, judges, it runs the gamut. And here I was as a 12-year-old saying, I want to go to school to study the music business. I remember taking a flashlight in the bed with me and reading this business of music, which was like the music industry Bible at the time, and researching schools. And the first school that jumped out to me when it was time to apply for college was Northeastern University in Boston, where I entered as a 17-year-old music business major. 
um, after having spent quite a few years carrying crates for DJs. My dad had friends that worked with Public Enemy, and one of his other friends was uh, Flavor Flav's personal DJ. And so he would take me along with him to record labels, knocking on doors. And of course, I'm like, I want to work here. I'm super eager. I was probably 14 at the time. And everyone's like, okay, little girl, keep me in mind, keep me in mind. So as the years went on and it was time for me to go to college, he brought me with him to Def Jam. And Def Jam was like, well, where are you going to school? We actually need a college representative on the ground in the New England area. And that became my first ever job as a 17-year-old. So here I am, I'm on campus my freshman year, but I'm meeting Method Man and Joe Budden at the airport. I'm taking them to their radio press junkets in the New England area. We're hanging out all night in nightclubs and I didn't have a cell phone at the time. So my mother's calling my dorm room like, where the hell are you? It's three o'clock in the morning. I'm like, I was out in the club with, you know, Neef and, and Method Man and all of these Def Jam artists. And having been around artists from such a, a young age, I got to see them in a multitude of different environments. So it wasn't only just that we would go. Who needs an alarm in the morning? When McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles. And a breakfast cutoff. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. To the club appearances and go to the radio press tours, it was I got to experience them doing the turkey giveaways in their neighborhoods. And, you know, coming back to speak to college students and at the YMCA locally in the New England area. But I started to connect dots that, in a public-facing way, in the media, there's always negative stories told of folks working and performing in hip-hop. And so what about the other side of the coin as it relates to community engagement and development work and partnership that doesn't get seen and told? So as the years went on, I worked for Mona Scott as her executive assistant at Violator Management. I worked with Chris Lighty at Jive Records. And so I was really at the center of so many epic movements and moments in the music business. Before I turned 21 years old, I had a fake ID. I would nod and smile and wink and do the whole New York thing to get myself in these rooms. And during the time at Violators, when 50 Cent's first album, Get Rich or Die Trying, came out, and when LL Cool J was an artist, and Missy Elliott and Busta Rhymes. And so I'm with these legendary acts, recognizing from a management perspective that there is a need and a void for folks in a public-facing arena before social media to know what it is that they were doing, that they were passionate about and the ways that allowed them to give back. And so that's where it started to align for me, the idea of social good and entertainment making an impact that led into the career path that I'm in now. So just before um, rejoining Paramount, MTV was my first ever official college co-op experience when I turned 18 29th floor, 1515 Broadway, same place I work now, um, that I said, you know what, there is something here that made me actually switch my major to sociology so that I could learn more about people, cultures, environments, movements 
But then to all of my co-op experiences, Northeastern is a five-year school that allows you to work full-time for six months out of the year in your career path of choice and then go to school for six months. I did all of my work experiences in the music business. So even back then, it was study and practice aligning as it related to social issues and entertainment. This is the most fascinating. I, If I could jump back in my time machine and go back to school and have that kind of experience, because just being able to learn, like, first of all, I'm older than you, but I am thinking, oh, wow, internships weren't really as stressed. And certainly I was one of the of our family mm-hmm. to go to college. Nobody knew about an internship. I waited tables. I was, uh, you know, all these things to make money. So it wasn't so much about the experience in the field that I was in, which was broadcast. Uh, I guess mm-hmm. it was called telecommunications and film then, but it's broadcast journalism. Yeah. Now. So it's just so fascinating to listen to you have this really robust experience. And are you surprised now? being at the forefront of some of these, this really amazing industry and movement about where a 50 cent is now, where meth is now, like just Mm -hmm. seeing their trajectory and the music industry. I'm not surprised. It happened in a very strategic and methodical way. And I give a lot of credit to the professionals that mentored me that I know played a strong hand in guiding those artists' careers. But of course, at the end of the day, we know many artists that have a lot of potential that don't live up to it based on their own uh, ability to listen to great guidance and to follow real strategies. And so I'm not surprised. I'm excited to see what's next in so many ways, because especially for 50 Cent, I was there when his multi-million dollar vitamin water deal was uh, signed and when his Reebok deal was signed. And I saw like the real thoughtfulness that went into it with Chris Lighty, God bless the dead, his guidance in, in making sure that artists took advantage of opportunities in corporate versus corporate taking advantage of artists, which we had seen for so many years prior, utilizing hip hop, whether it was the soundtracks or talents and underpaying them versus having true ownership and equity. And that's when I saw the shift happen in the early 2000s for where we are today. I also should have shouted out Mona, of course, because I don't know her personally, um, but I did meet her at that Martha's Vineyard thing that invited me to this, that the Smithsonian hosted. And she could not have been more lovely and kind. But I just listened to a really amazing um, interview with her, uh, with Tatavio from, and I was, I learned so much about her and now connecting the dots on exactly what you're saying, who she is all yes. along and building toward that is really just Super inspirational. And John, I know you were about to say something because I was. And Melissa, one thing about one thing about DD and I is we fight for questions. And it's like whoever takes the mute off first goes. And she typically beats me. <laughs> um, but no, I love I love your trajectory and I love your career. And I want to kind of focus in um as we continue to, to climb up to where you are now of like your time at NAACP um 
uh, and ACLU your time there because that was that was a different industry for you. So let's talk about how that pivot came and you kind of started going into more of the, the could I say nonprofit yeah, space? Yeah, definitely. a little bit more. Yeah, and kind of getting into that. So that was Kismet and Accident Uniting. I was working for, uh, back in 2009, a really amazing public relations firm ran by a woman named Layla Turkan, industry legend. We represented a tribe called Quest. We represented Lior Cohen. We so many, so many amazing acts. But unfortunately, it's really hard to be a, a woman running a business, being an independent business owner. She had to close the doors to her business. And leading into Christmas season of 2008, I learned this news and I said, oh my gosh, I'll never move back home. I'm too prideful and too independent. So what am I going to do for money now? So this was when staffing agencies were a thing. You would go to the local library, print out 20 copies of your resume, you know, pay a dollar and go door to door in Midtown Manhattan with your suit on, ill-fitting, probably New York and Co. or Macy's outfit. (laughs) (laughs) Don't hate on New York and Co. learners. Got me through some some tough years. Exactly. And, and the new Gabrielle Union line it's is so really cute. cute. It's super cute. So I'm, I'm there in my in my pinstripes and I'm like, I need a job. And they said, well, you know what? The NAACP Legal Defense Fund is looking for part-time seasonal support. They have a new HR director and she needs someone to basically file papers and help her put some systems in place to get her started. So at this point, I had maybe seven years of music business experience out of college. And, you know, I'm thinking I have this degree. What am, what else am I going to do? I will take the $9 an hour that you're offering me right now. And so I started working and I was there for maybe six to eight weeks. And the president and director counsel, John Payton, suddenly passed away. That happened at the same time that the head of communications resigned to go take on a new job. And everyone is scrambling. We're getting requests from the New York Post and the the, uh, New York Times and the Washington Post for comments. What are we going to do? And so I always say, closed mouths, don't get fed. And that was my opportunity to introduce everyone to the other side of Melissa. I'm not just here to follow your paperwork. I actually am a seasoned publicist. These are the years of experience that I have. These are the outlets that I've previously had relationships with. And they're like, well, we don't have any other person available right now. So the job is yours. Run with it. And I was able to coordinate and put some press plans in place for his in memoriam. And that led to me getting the role as uh, head of communications there. And I stayed there for four years. And, you know, all of these social justice organizations, thankfully, work very closely together And the ACLU was hiring for a brand new position for an associate director in a senior role to lead strategic communications across all the national offices. And they found me and they offered me. It was my first time making six figures. I threw myself a big party. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. 
Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, 40-40 that to this day I just know I was carried out of. I don't remember, but it was a good time I've heard. <laughs> 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 and the ACLU also knew through my interview experiences and conversations that I had connections to entertainment. So they asked me to also start their celebrity ambassador program. And here's where I was able to, again, merge both worlds, never leaving skill sets on the table to say, you know what? Yes, John Legend, let's talk about voting rights. And I got to film a PSA with Harry Belafonte on criminal law reform and work super closely with Melissa Etheridge. Again, legends. I feel like I was raised and, and groomed amongst the best of the best and got to hear so many stories. Um, and so that's where... The pivot into nonprofit social justice work happened, but I was able to bring it full circle back into the world of entertainment. Uh, yeah, Melissa, where we are now. I am telling you right now, if there is not a book coming, a show you have pitched, <laughs> this is the best story ever. So talk to us about what the what's the fam thinking as you're making these these moves. You're in the you're in the music industry, yes. which your dad has a little bit mm. of a insight to because he has friends in the business. But then yeah. you also at some point go get a master's degree, I believe. Yeah, while I was yes, and then you're pivoting mm-hmm. into how's your family and how are you navigating getting to that six figure job when maybe you started you were starting to make more money than the family that you grew up in the family was making. What was that all like? Yeah. Really interesting time. So this was, you know, in my late 20s. And I was always so proud of my father's trajectory, becoming a captain and leading the court officers in Bronx and Manhattan. And he was always a hustler, too. He always had more than one job. So his, his day job made him, you know, a little over 100K, which was great for us as a family as I grew up. Uh, and then he had, you know, jobs doing private security work and private investigation. You know, everybody in law enforcement has a hustle. Um, and he was actually really afraid for me going into this new world of private practice and private industry because... They believe you need a pension. What are you going to do when you retire? And go take the test, Melissa. I can get you, you know, the fast track to a senior role as a court officer or a correction officer at Rikers, where my mother was for 20 years. And I just kept saying, no, I believe that I can do this. I know I lost my job here and I had to pivot there. But trust me, trust me. And it was hard for me to really articulate what it is that I did for a living because they just, it would go over their head. So I'm like, just, just show up. And my mother always reminds me of a time, senior year of high school, I was always really independent. I would go upstairs, I would do my homework on my own. And when it came to apply for colleges and scholarships, I did it all on my own too. So the high school guidance office asked me if I was going to show up one night to the scholarship awards dinner. And I said, yeah, I guess I'll show up. And they're like, no, make sure you come. They're not telling me why. Make sure you come. So my mother was upstairs in her bedroom. And I said, Ma, we have a thing to do at seven o'clock. Do you want to come with me to school? I was like, you really don't have to. She's like, I'll come. 
Well, I ended up getting over $100,000 in scholarships that night. And she's like, what were you, you all this time, you're applying to scholarships. I have no idea what you're doing. So I reminded them of that as my career went on. Like, just, you know, I do my thing. Just show up when I tell you I need you. So whether it was me receiving an award or celebrating getting a new position, just show up and trust me that I'm going to make you proud. I love that because I think for me too, as with my family, I, it's like that. Like trust the pro- trust the process. Trust yes. me. Yes. You know, you, you're never going to understand what this all means because you just it's just a generational exactly. thing. Meantime, I'm taking and, out loans they don't know about. I'm ruining my credit. Right. <laughs> just so that they and John, did you? I never asked you this, but did your family try? Did your dad try to get you to join? Because he's an army vet. He was an army. He didn't try to get me to join the army. He told me that army wasn't for me, but he did say like he wanted me to have more. He said you need a traditional job, and mm-hmm. that to him that was like a lawyer, doctor, a teacher. Yeah. Um, and I was like, well, I don't want to do any of those things. And is my mom is in the education field too, and they just thought it, it was safe. It was very yeah. like you can you can get your degree, you can make this amount of money guaranteed. I'm like, I don't, I don't want that normal life. I don't. And it took them a while to to understand what marketing was and mm-hmm. just my love for film. Uh, and they finally got it, thankfully. But to this day, if you ask my mom what I do, she thinks, she, A, she thinks I work for Tyler Perry. I'm like, mom, <laughs> I have not done that. <laughs> I, did one, I did one movie with Tyler Perry years ago, and that's literally stuck in her head. I'm like, no, girl. I'm beyond that. <laughs> and my dad was in my dad was an Air Force recruiter. And so I remember him saying, you could go in as an officer, you'd be able to retire at 40, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, I never envisioned being 40. So you can imagine that when 40 came and went, and I was mm-hmm. like, oh my God, maybe I should have listened to my dad. <laughs> right. I like, oh my God, I gotta fund my own retirement. I gotta do this. I gotta do that. Every time I see uh, industry layoffs, I hear this over my shoulder, like, oh, you could have had a person by now. <laughs> but but listen, let's talk about like let's talk about like that little that little fear that kind of jumps on our shoulder sometimes. That that sense of like nervousness and fear and uncertainty that rears his ugly head at times, right? How do you what's your process of like saying, no, I'm not gonna I'm not listening to you, I'm gonna push forward. I'm going to do what my gut, what my heart says. Because again, knowing you have your parents speaking this here, you know, this is the uncertainty of the job sometime in the industry. Like it can, it could and can be scary at times. And, but what kind of keeps you motivated to keep going and kind of, you know, pushing through it, through all the noise and all the potential negativity? Yeah, I think. It's a mastery of my vision, and I really Mm. believe in manifestation, and Mm. I just sit and think and connect dots and think about who do I know and have conversations, and I'm I'm an introverted extrovert. Everybody thinks, oh, you're such an extrovert, but I'm like, no, I'm really not. It takes me five hours to recharge after going out one night. Oh, my God. Yes. Didi and me. That's all. We're all the same person. <laughs> we're like, do we really want to go to this thing? <laughs> it is pushing myself past that mm-hmm. lever of discomfort or wanting to stay home or back out of an opportunity that when I am unsure that I have to say, oh, 
nope, there it is. There's the doubt. There's the introvert telling you to stay at home, but nothing is going to find you in the house. So get outside, speak up, write that email that might go unanswered, but it's always going to be a no if you never try. At least you have a 50-50 shot if you do. So, yeah. And I think it's also the intention behind it all too, right? Like just making mm-hmm. sure that, you know, we we don't know the road, we don't have the map, but like yeah. I know what my I know what I want at the end of the road and I know yes. like how I need to get there and what the tools I need to use to get there. Absolutely. Um Dee, I know you had a question, so I'm gonna pivot to you for a second. Beauty and why we like to do these conversations, because in this field, there's no road. Most of us are not Nepo babies. We're not coming from right. a place where there's mentorship, a guide, a roadmap, um, et cetera, et cetera. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, you're navigating that with how you said you work with some great mentors and people guiding you along the way. Yeah. But that doesn't come without making mistakes, right? I always like to share, mm. our, always like for our guests to share, like maybe a mistake that they made and what they learned from it and how they pivoted from it. Or even if you don't want to share what the mistake is, but what you might've learned from it along the way that even set you maybe on a better path once, you know, you had experienced that. Yeah, I think it was during my time working for Mona Scott, you mentioned, you know, hearing her story I didn't have an initial appreciation for her when I was 20, 21. It was, oh my God, my boss is so mean. My boss wants me here in the office at eight o'clock and then she doesn't show up until two o'clock and then I have to stay until 10 o'clock and not having a, uh, a sense of why at the time as a Black woman in the leadership role, she had one of the only super successful music managers that was a black woman. Why she... If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. She had to act or portray herself in the way that she did to garner respect. Um... And so that made me learn to check my ego very early on. I think that that was something as as a 20-year-old where I said, oh, my God, I've been working for four years and I'm I'm the shit in Boston. Here I am in New York and you guys need to know who I am. And and Mona humbled me very quickly and said, "Uh uh-uh, honey, this is how you answer my phone here. This is how you're going to show up. You're going to go walk for the cheesecake, you know, in the words of Puffy, and and sweat (laughs) it out to make things happen for yourself because I'm not giving you any handouts, dear. And we laugh about it now when I get to run into her. I just saw her at Sundance. And she's like, I'm just so proud of you. And I give her credit all the time. Like, you trained me and you groomed me in ways that I didn't understand but that allowed me to become who I am, to be the mentor that I am to other young women now where I can say, you know, let's let's have the keep it real conversation that other people aren't going to tell you and pull them aside and, and, and check them on some of the behaviors that I know that I displayed when I was their age too and I had to learn and grow from. Um And then also sponsorship in the role that I'm in now at Paramount, it was really Crystal Barnes who 
observed me for a year and said, you have a skill set that this brand new department needs. You have an ability to connect people, think big, uh, partnership ideas, um, really from ideation to inception to execute something that we don't know what we want it to be just yet. And would you be open to stepping into a new role? And it was that that led me um, to have the great opportunity where I get to lead strategy and impact for Paramount and our content for change initiative now. Yeah. I love that. And you, you, you being so busy with your current job and just your career, I have to ask you, Melissa, because I, I struggle with this sometimes of like creating time for self, self-care, mm. mental and physical. Like, yeah. no, no, we, we all are in this fast-paced, crazy industry that we are all in. Music yeah. is the same as film. Film is the same as TV. It's all crazy and busy all the time. And I always want to be mindful of just like, you know, space and just time off and just self-care. And I, I wanted to, to unpack that a little bit with you of just, how do you create that for yourself? Do you create that for yourself? Could you be, could you be doing better? Like, let's have an honest conversation about it. I know we all struggle with it. The honest answer is no, John. I'm also a mom to a three-year-old, uh, you know, a new homeowner, juggling family. Yes. I'm Aww. an old child whose mother is very overbearing and always needs help and support. So when I put my work had aside, which I often don't do because I feel like it's so part of who I am and my identity mm-hmm. that every conversation ends up being work adjacent or everything I do ends up being that too, that it really has been appreciating the little things that I didn't realize I was doing to give myself self-care. So I love to cook. So when I cook now, I really do it with intention. I make sure the kitchen is spotless. Everything is set up methodically so that it becomes almost meditative when I get into that state and I put on my Sade Kiss of Life radio Pandora station. And, you know, even if it's 30 minutes or it's doing a quick omelet in the morning, that helps me kind of center myself and ground myself. And I have a therapist who every two weeks, she's like, I don't care if you're in the airport, you better put your headphones on. She's a Black woman who comes from the entertainment industry and just gets me and knows our language and the difficulties and challenges that we have. So I make sure that no matter what, that I'm checking in with her. I'm going to need the name and number of the therapist. Got you. For <laughs> real. Um, yes. Yes. So- and, and my, my, my therapy is, and Didi knows this too, is I love the shop. So like, I, I will, that. I will go to the outlets here in LA on a, on a Sunday and be and just decompress with some Gucci and St. Laurent. <laughs> Please, next trip. He's not yes. exaggerating. That like getting there is like an hour and a half drive. He gets up early. Yeah. Sometimes he brings one of our friends. He's been trying to get me to go for years. I'm like, I ain't going because I don't want to get up early. But <laughs> so funny because that is his. He's so right about that. It's his thing, and that's really for John. It is he's my not, thing. Oh, and don't forget the facials. Don't front on the. 
Yeah, I, yeah, I get my facials very religiously as well. Yes. So those are my like things I have to do. Like I go to outlets once a month and I get my facial once a month. And I try to spread them out when like, I'm like, all right, I really need a, a moment from work or from this mm-hmm. crazy life and it works. So I co- totally understand your, your, your cooking and what that does. Because for. that's walking, that's fresh air, you know, yeah. you- I have my pods in. I'll be ready. I'll be jamming. And like, I'm all right. I'm good. And then I get two calls afterwards. It's a win-win. The outlet's out in Palm Desert, too, if you have any. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, those are, oh, listen, we got to go. Yeah, so you are uh, the ma- your masterful comms expert. The way that you connected John's shopping addiction to uh, walking and fresh air, amazing. <laughs> Thank you, Melissa. Like, I, now I really feel seen and justified. <laughs> I do want to just dive a little bit deeper into the, the, the wholeness of being a whole person. So many of us in the entertainment industry, mm. and I feel like especially women and particularly Black women, have not made time for their personal lives to date, to get married. They're so married to the job. They may feel like they're not meeting black men or men that they want to date. There's so many of our friends that are like that, right, John? And I was probably like that for a long time. How did you make space for that to meet your husband and date and like just carve out some time where you're not running and gunning all the time? And was there an intentionality about it? Was it serendipitous? Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, no. Really good question. So my current husband is my second marriage. Um, I got married the first time when I was young, and I think that marriage came about because I had the idea that I needed to settle that part of my life so that I could focus on my career success. So it was find a guy, you know, he was great on paper, everything checked off, Ivy degree, beautiful car, did a community service work, six-figure job, and so... My mother always told me, find somebody on your level or above, and that's who you marry. But my dad always told me, marry your friend. And so we weren't really friends. It was really about the checklist and me feeling like, well, by the time I'm 30, I have to get married. I have to have, you know, the $100,000 wedding that social media assets can be created from, and I'll be posted on the not.com, et cetera, et cetera. And my father passed away three weeks before that wedding. And it was uh, the first time in our entire life that we had a season where he was my best friend and we were at odds and not speaking. So the day of my wedding, his best friend walked me down the aisle. And I just remember hearing his words about marry your friend and realizing that I was not with the right person. But I said, all these, I have 150 people in Barbados. I'm here in the gown. I have to go through with it. Everything is paid for. And I tried and I tried for a year. I tried for year two and realized that that little whisper of my dad was right. Um, And so my current husband, we had just been friends for like 10 years. He was always, he, he liked other women in the circle. I would know all his dirt with his ex-girlfriends and current girlfriends and side booze and everything that he was doing. (laughs) And I remember him when my dad died 
being one of the people who very explicitly said, if there's anything that you need, and I believed it, it wasn't just he said it offhandedly or because he was supposed to, it was like, if there's anything that you need. And when I was surrounding my moving boxes, leaving my first marriage, he said, why don't we go out to eat one day? And I thought I was going out to eat with my friend. That turned into a 12-hour date where he stopped. He ran a marathon in between. He came back. We went out to dinner after going to lunch. Then we hung out that night. And it was from that day that I said, ah, this is what it means to be with your friend. Um, And from there, we fast-tracked it. We got married. We have our three-year-olds. And not to say anything is easy. I'm telling the very short version of a happily ever after. Uh, We all know the challenges that we have to navigate growing with somebody. And especially when you know them as a friend, that's different than the the magic bow of just the love of your life. Um, It's been a lot of learning to give each other grace, especially as he is in entertainment too, as a DJ and a photographer, very well known took, you know, Kanye and Big Sean's first photos when he was on staff at Def Jam himself. Um, He has an understanding of what it takes when I need to be on the road and supports from that angle. And I think uh, as a woman with big aspirations and dreams, you need a partner that's understanding that you can't always cook every meal and be present every day. But that is for the greater good of the family and the unit, too. Melissa, that was, again, such a great story. And just so you know, (laughs) you were smiling through that story about talking about your husband, which feels so good because, you know, some people start talking about their husband and they're like, the eyes are in the back of their head. They're shaking their head. So that is so, so sweet. Um, I want to dive into as well your passion for board work. I tell you what, the steps or the article that you gave Exo Nicole back in 2020 about how you got into it, I was like, I'm printing this off. I'm writing the checklist. Talk to us about your passion for that. Uh, some of the, the tips that you have, any resources and the boards that you're on. Yeah, so currently I am the first woman and first African-American to chair the board of the National Job Corps Association. And so that's an organization that uh, provides opportunities for students from non-traditional education or career paths to get workforce development and placement. I I know it well. My dad went there and my sister. My dad retired his second career from the Job Corps. There's a a Job Corps uh, podcast and social media. So if he's open or your sister, we'd love to talk to them about it. But yeah, um, that role came to be just because I I knew what it was like to be someone pursuing a non-traditional path and what having access to opportunity and trainings and workshops and mentorships was able to do for me, even though I do have a four-year degree and a master's degree. But when I was a young person, I wanted to open those doors and to get in those rooms. And so from the age of 18 onward, 
young people have the ability through Job Corps to learn how to work in the trades. And now we're working very closely in the world of tech. And so I'm super excited about that. I recently joined the board of Beyond Sport. And so the trifecta of entertainment we know is TV, film, music, and sports. And I have been so frustrated looking at stories, whether it was Colin Kaepernick or Kyrie Irving, of saying at the league level, there's a disconnect between what these young Black talents are trying to achieve in the worlds of social justice and impact by using their brands and their face, name, likeness to tell the story and bring to light, you know, issues facing the Black community. And it doesn't seem from the ownership level or from the league level that they're understanding how to embrace that and how to support that. And so I wanted to gain more experience to the world of sports and build out my network in that way. And I get to do that by supporting this amazing organization that provides um, access and training and funding to global sports programs, like working with uh, female soccer players in Afghanistan and Iran, where they are with their burqas on and they are so passionate about sport and what it can do for them in light of, you know, so many other things facing them as women based on their religion and more. And then lastly, the longest board that I've been on coming on a decade now is a New York-based organization that I chair called Fostering Change for Children. And so that looks at uh, children and families in foster care, realizing that not every family is perfect, but every family deserves a shot at getting it right. And so our goal is to make sure that talented folks working in social services, as social workers, have the ability in the skills and tool sets to keep families together. And um, I'm really passionate about that. And I would I would suggest that everyone find it is a form of self-care for me because these are areas outside of my direct day-to-day work that I'm able to utilize my skill sets to influence and impact change in so many different arenas. Um, I think everyone should serve on a board. You know, there can be... Uh, ways that you do it, that you give a little bit of your time and you can give a lot of your time or your talents or your your treasure to uh, supporting small and large nonprofit organizations. Well, not to mention the fact you were so super intentional about that. And in our show notes, we'll link that article about um, the intentionality and the research and also your passion for getting more of us on on these on these boards. Yes. We know there's a lack of for sure. Um, Absolutely. And that's been a personal goal of DNIs too. Like, we need to get on a border five. Like, we need to because yeah. we have so much passion for that. Like, I would, I would love to to unpack that a little bit more. Um, Melissa, I, this conversation, I think I might be kicking Didi out of my best friend circle and adding you <laughs> because I'm I'm slightly I'm slightly obsessed with you, Melissa. I'm obsessed with you. I'm telling you. I'm I'm obsessed. <laughs> Capital all the letters. Obsessed. Likewise, likewise. I I literally just followed you on Instagram, so follow back. Um, but I but please let all of our Black on the Scene uh, listeners know about where they can find you at, what you have going on, all the things. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram and LinkedIn at Melissa C Potter. Um, And I often hit the road at all of the major industry events, whether it's leading panel discussions, serving as a panelist, 
hosting events so you can find out more about where I'll be and hopefully say hello by seeing my calendar and my Instagram stories where I post about uh, the BET Awards is coming up and the CMT Awards. And we're going into Super Bowl 2024 and Art Basel and Martha's Vineyard. And there are just so many different exciting places where I'll get to show up and connect with folks. And so I hope to see you. Not to mention a fabulous new website, melissasmcotter.com. You know, I have already done a deep dive, (laughs) the the ensembles, everything. Oh, Oh, I love it. Thank you. Yes. melissacpotter.com, hot off the presses. Uh, and there you could book me for speaking engagements and reach out with any questions that you have about your own career path. Oh, family. my goodness. Melissa, yes, literally, Melissa. this podcast is our love letter to Black entertainment. And we usually will ask our our guests to share their love letter. You are the love letter to Black entertainment and social impact. I called you social impact Barbie in our <laughs> <laughs> she did. She literally did. <laughs> and it I makes all the sense. Probably. I'm going to get a t shirt made. <laughs> I love that. Melissa, thank you so much. This has been so enlightening. This has been so fun. And I'm so happy to now officially be connected with you um, from here on out. And I, I love your story. I love your journey. And please know that Dean and I will always support you. We see you. We love you. And we thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a magical conversation. Thank you so much. And thank you both for highlighting the culture and for giving a platform to so many folks, including myself now in season four. So congratulations to that. We want to have us a season four party, Didi, like her forty forty party, and they can drag us out. <laughs> and that's the perfect place to have it's it. It's the perfect place. We should so do that. The visual of that, the mental picture of that, I am dying. Oh the, 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 the day after, the, the day after will be the fun part. <laughs> All right, Black on the Scene listeners, we will see you guys next time. Thank you so much for joining us. Peace. Peace. Hey there. Ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah. Or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before.